Aloha, y'all. You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. Uh, In this episode, I am super stoked to have had the opportunity to interview author and angler Dylan Tomina. We discuss everything from what a good day of steelheading looks like to environmental threats to steelhead, such as climate change and hatcheries, which actually brings up a topic I've never thought about, which is how are South Carolina's redfish hatcheries impacting our own fishery? Um, but the, the main topic today is going to be Dylan's uh, newly released book, Headwaters, The Adventures, Obsession, and Evolution of a Fly Fisherman. Um, I've had the opportunity to read Headwaters. It's an excellent read for anglers, no matter where you are on your angling evolution. So uh, with that, uh, we'll, we'll dive in. Thanks for listening. Merger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to measure and improve your company's sustainability performance, reduce your overall greenhouse gas emissions, and help you tell a compelling story to customers through transparent reporting. Merger Strategies is a proud 1% for the Planet member, as well as a founding member of the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance. The FFCA has a brand new website you can check out to learn more. It's www.flyfishingclimatealliance.org. And to learn more about Emerger Strategies Sustainability Services, please visit www.emergerstrategies.com. Yeah, thanks to uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Well. Um, Dylan, I, I think we, our paths initially, I think, crossed. Well, let me back up. I was introduced to you because I read Closer to the Ground um, while my wife was pregnant with our first child. She's three now, um, and I have a one-year-old son. So I want to I wanna dive into that a little bit. But um, we were also introduced by a mutual friend, uh, River Horse, uh, a couple of years ago. And... Um, I am so excited to finally have you on the podcast. Um, so without me doing your own introduction, I thought I'd let you kick that off your, yourself. For those of you who don't know that, that Dylan's an author and, and, a, uh, and an angler. Um, yeah, I'm an author and an angler. <laughs> <laughs> and a father and all those other things, not necessarily in that order. Um, but yeah, um, it's really, I, I think this just the fact that we've crossed paths in the past is really just an indication of what a small, what a small world the fishing world is, you know, especially the fly fishing world. And then it gets rarefied even further when it's the fly fishing world, conservation world. And yeah, like, you know, the Venn diagram starts, the intersecting part gets smaller and smaller. And so, um, so it's good to actually see you in person on, uh, uh, on video through the miracle of, of, uh, what we've all been kind of reduced to during the pandemic. And, um, and it's great to, I think, because we have a handful or more than a handful, probably of mutual friends and acquaintances, it just feels real comfortable to be talking with you. Yeah. Well, well, thanks so much. And, um, so yeah, uh, well, let's, let's talk a little bit. I do want to kind of go back to closer to the ground. Um, and 
I know that you've got an upcoming book coming out, Headwaters, that we'll we'll, we'll dive into that I've had the opportunity to, um, to, to read a fair bit of. I'll, I'll be truthful and I have not finished it before the interview, but um, maybe maybe that's a good thing. Um, we won't, we won't divulge the whole book on, on, on the show. Okay. <laughs> um, but I will say, so cl- closer to the ground. So for those of you who don't know your first book and, um, really takes your family and your kids through the seasons and getting outside and eating locally and, and harvesting food. And, and that just, I have to just, I want to take the opportunity to tell you that just really inspired me when um, my wife was pregnant. And it's something that as my kids get a little bit older that I intend to do here in the low country, um, you know, we, we have similar opportunities being on the coast with our oysters and blue crabs and, and shrimp. And um, that's just something that I'm really looking forward to. So um, I just wanted to say thank you for that and also see if there um if there were any lessons that stood out to you in particular through going through that experience? Well, first of all, I'll, uh, I'll really blow your mind. If you read this book four years ago and your child is three now, I think you said you have a daughter. Yeah. Um, two things. First of all, I would just say you're right at the beginning of the really fun time. Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, as they start to get a little more um, sturdy and dexterous and, and, able to withstand some of the elements and stuff, you know, that, um, and then their brain development is where, you know, they start to develop the interest and the excitement, the stoke of going out and doing those things. And so, um, so I'm a little envious. You're right at the, at the opening salvo, of what's going to be like the best adventure of your life. Um, and then to really blow your mind, this is what I was going to say earlier is if you read the book four years ago, uh, in that, in the book, Skyla and Weston are seven and three, and I think it takes place over a course of a year, so they're eight and four. Um, and Skyla is uh, a senior in high school now. She's um, <laughs> she's <laughs> she's eighteen, and uh, you know is uh, is five eleven, and like it's this mind blowing thing where I'm not even sure they're the same people. Um, and then, and Weston, who was just the little kid with the stutter in the, in the, in the book, um, is now 15 and he's six, one and 180 pounds and, um, eating me out of house and home. Like I, you couldn't forage enough food to feed that kid. So, um, so yeah, it's pretty mind blowing, I think. And that's the indication I think also of just, I mean, just to start with, it took a really long time for me to write that book. And so they weren't that age when it came out either, but um, but it's been out for a while now and they've just, you know, keep growing, keep, keep getting smarter and bigger and taller and all that. So, um, and it's also, I think, you know, one of the lessons I've learned since that book is it becomes increasingly difficult to schedule the stuff we did really easily when they were small, you know, and that's between homework and school obligations and extracurricular things, and then friends and plans and things they want to do. Um, both my kids have been involved in pretty high-level travel sports, and um, which you don't know this yet, but but is like an all-consuming thing of driving to tournaments and weekend trips and daily practices and that sort of thing. And so. Um, so I will say that you're about to enter that sweet spot where the outside obligations haven't increased and it's a lot easier to actually go out and do those things when 
the tide happens to be right or the weather looks good or, you know, you can kind of let those things make the decisions for you when they're small. Um, when they're older, it's like, can we run out to the woods and pick some mushrooms between, uh, you know, basketball practice and weight training or between, you know, I mean, or between model UN and volleyball practice, like you start to get pretty compressed, um, but it's all good. I mean, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed I really, I love watching them play sports and work on those kind of things. So it, it's not, it's not necessarily any worse or better or whatever. It just, the priorities start to shift. So I would say that enjoy the, the fishing and foraging, uh, you know, over the next few years while you can, when it's still relatively easy. Yeah. Well, that, that is uh solid advice that, that I will heed. Um, so another sort of um something that i mentioned before that is kind of um i'm interested in, in learning a little bit more of uh, about this um and like i said you know i i'm in charleston i'm not sure how many folks here have ever gone steelhead fishing um but could you maybe walk us through what a day of steelhead fishing is is like for you on a good day um and we'll we'll, we'll start there okay um yeah the um you know there's a fair amount of steelhead fishing in the new book coming out so i think that that's a good segue there um a good day um for me is uh the river's just coming back into shape after after pretty good rains and made it muddy and high and it's just dropping and clearing. Um, I like, you know, three to four feet of visibility, kind of emerald green color. Um, I try and find spots that are about walking speed with a choppy surface and, you know, rocks about the size of basketballs. And, um, you know, I don't, doesn't necessarily have to be a crack of dawn or last light sort of thing. It's really kind of a lot of times with winter steelhead fishing, it gets better around noon when the water's warmed up a little bit. Um, and then we will, you know, I, I had a drift boat for years and we do these floats, but I realized that when you're floating the river, everybody puts in at the same time in the morning and you float down the river in a flotilla of other boats. And so I've more recently over the last several years, I've taken more to, to walking into spots. So, you know, early you can go down low in a drift and the boats haven't gotten there yet. And then in the afternoon, you can go upstream to where they haven't been for a while because they've gone by. So um, out here, like on the Olympic Peninsula, it's, it's, it's hard as hell to find the walk-in. Like how do you get to these spots? It's a lot easier to to scout it and learn it from floating down it in a river. So it takes a lot of, um, a lot of asking permission or, um, you know, Onyx is a really good, <laughs> you know, the property, uh, yeah. uh, mapping tool that you can get on your phone. So anyway, so let's say that I figured out a way to get to a spot that I really like to make it in there through busting brush or whatever. And, um, the first really good sign is that there's nobody else there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then it's really starting up at the top and casting short and then a little longer and a little longer and a little longer. And each swing kind of covers a certain, like a, you know, a piece of the pie as it arcs through the run. And then when you get out to sort of the amount of line you want out for the full distance of casting, then um, 
then you cast and make your mend. And while the fly is sinking or the sink tip sinking, you take a couple steps downstream and let it come tight and arc through the run. I really like the fly swimming uh, across the current, uh, never pointed downstream, like with a big loop, you know, I want like the nose of the fly, the eye of the fly pointing just barely slightly upstream and try and do whatever you can through men's to get the fly to swim crosswise. Okay. Um, and, you know, a lot of the really good spots have a seam between kind of slow water in close and then a seam and then faster water farther out. And a lot of times um, the fish will hang right in that seam. Uh, so you want the fly swimming really good as it starts to come into the slower water and you know, if it's a, if it's a really good day and you keep doing that, you might hook three or four. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think my maximum, I think I once had a day where I hooked 17 fish. That was going to uh, be my next question. I was like, all right, so what's the best you've done? 17. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was an anomaly though. Um, <laughs> yeah. and then, uh, you know, and a lot of days, especially now, you know, a lot of the times, um, you know, you might fish several days for a fish. Um, you might hit one right away. And, um, you know, at least when the populations are good, I found that if there's one fish willing to grab in a run, there's often more than one. Um, so if you fish through and get a fish, you might go back up to the top and change to a little smaller, darker fly and come through again and, and find another one. Um, you know, when, when there were better numbers of fish in our local rivers, you know, it wouldn't be unusual to hook three or four in one spot. There might not be any in the next spot or the next spot or the spot you fished before it. But when you, when you hooked one, you tended to hook more than one in that, in that run. Interesting. So, so I have a, a, a quick follow-up because something sticks in my mind that you said, you said you liked basketball size boulders why why is that and, you're, and i'll preface all of this by saying you're going to have to pardon my ignorance because I, I no no it's, it's, it's <laughs> you know i mean steelhead fishing is really i mean it, it's really the tom mcguane quote around it you know the requisites are really a big arm and a room temperature iq <laughs> um, and and now that we have spay rods, it doesn't even require a big arm. So you just really need to have the room temperature IQ in your set. Um, but the the bigger rocks, you know, basketball size to like, you know, chair sized or whatever, um, creates uh, eddies and turbulence down on the bottom. So the choppy surface, when you look at it, indicates that there's bigger rocks on the bottom, which is good. And with those bigger rocks, the fish will either hold like in the little eddies and seams created by the rocks, or a lot of times they'll sit on the upstream side of the rock and they can kind of hold still the way a, a whitewater kayaker can like use a combination of gravity and current flow to just stay in one place. Yeah. Um, so sometimes there will be in, on the upstream side of the rock or, um, you know, and in a, most of the good steelhead runs, it's kind of this huge field of of pretty good sized cobble. And so you don't really know where exactly they're going to be. Mm -hmm. um, I think if, uh, you know, there's certain runs where you tend to hook fish like, hey, you know, right as you start to get across from, from that big alder tree is usually where you get them, you know, and then you start to hold your breath a little bit more when you, when the fly starts swinging. But <clears throat> <it's, clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, we're having this crazy alder bloom here right now. And I'm like, 
turning to mucus, but um, <laughs> well, we're we're his sprung in Charleston, so I, I I can relate. We've already got yellow pollen on the cars. Yeah, my car. I just I had to run to the post office this morning, and there was like my whole car. I have a you know a dark gray car that now looks like pale yellow. So, <laughs> uh, but you know, I think what happens with steelhead fishing that's so different from every other kind of fly fishing is that. Um, there really is, there's no indication that there's, there are, aren't fish in most of the runs you fish. Like you can't see them. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think um, I talked about this a little bit in, in headwaters in the new book that's coming out that, um, you know, with dry fly fishing for trout, you're waiting to see kind of a regular rising pattern by a specific fish. And then you're trying to you know, you see them rising, so you know where it is. And then you're just trying to get that drag free drift, like into that spot where, you know, if, with flats fishing, you know, you don't just stand out there and cast randomly, right? You're looking, you're somebody's pulling or you're walking and you're looking for bonefish or permit and you see them and you yeah. cast to them. tarpon, same thing. You know, you see the fish coming, you cast to them. Um, even like, you know, the, the inshore fishing in the Northeast and down to where you are, it's usually you know, there's striped bats or bluefish blitzing, or there's, you know, you see the albacore uh, with a bait ball and they're breaking the water and stuff. And so I, steelhead fishing is really one of the only sort of glamour species fishing you do where there's no visual cue other than what the water's telling you, um, which is, I think what comes into requiring the room temperature IQ is that you, <laughs> you have to be able to just kind of keep sifting through the water yeah and having the faith that that there's a fish there and they'll grab it and you know and more and more with the 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 re, you know the loss of the steelhead runs and the low populations now a lot of times it, there aren't fish in the run you're fishing but you have to just keep going in case there is one there so you, um, you're, you're more or less canvassing areas to be like okay i'm going to work this entire area and if i put my fly through this entire you know <coughs> work my way down or run or up or run. I don't know which way you're going, but you, you're, you can canvas an area versus sight casting to a, a rising trout or a tailing redfish or whatever you're. you're yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you work from, you work from upstream to downstream. So you start okay. at the top of the run and work your way downstream. And then I usually between. Oh, so right. Cause how would this fly swing? That was just, no, that was a dumb question. So if the fly is, is, is prescribing this arc across the river, um, every time you step downstream and make a new cast, that arc should be about the same, but the currents change as you work downstream. So you have to mend differently. And then, um, I try and take the number of steps downstream that is about the distance that I think the steelhead, given the conditions, will move to the fly. So in that way, you end up covering the whole the whole run from top to bottom in increments of one or two or three or four steps. Okay. You know, the warmer the water is, the farther they'll move for the fly. So if it's real cold and I think there's fish there, I might only take a step oh. or a step and a half between casts so that the arcs are closer together. Yeah. Um, but if it's, you know, if it's August on the Dean and the water's 56 degrees, I think those fish will move quite a ways. So I might take four steps between casts. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, that's similar to redfish in, the, in a you know winter red fishing. You're going to retrieve slower because they're just not they're lethargic, not moving as fast. Versus, okay, I can give it a good twitch. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I think yeah. that's exactly the same. I try and make the fly swim slower when the water's cold, and probably yeah. um, tend to fish slower runs in cold water as well because the fish don't have to use as much energy to stay in place. Um, Makes so, sense. You know, I don't, when the water's real cold, like, you know, if the water's 34, 36, the number of fish you can get to move to a swung fly is much lower anyway, but I will look for them in places where the fly can swim across current real slowly. Interesting. All right. Well, that's good to know. See, see that, see, I just like to try and pick, pick up nuggets while, 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 that's while, it. while these now people on to go. Now, you know, yeah, that's, <laughs> so, that's so, really, so. that's all there is. <laughs> that's all there is to it you know so, the, now, so now that i've got the steelhead fishing down what's next <laughs> yeah that's it that's you know i mean it's crazy because you know if you go trout fishing with somebody that knows what they're doing in a place like you know silver creek or the henry's fork or or you know even like the madison um and you're intent on fishing dry flies those fish have seen like a million dry flies and yeah. so you know, you got to match the exact bug and the size and the color and can't have any drag. And, you know, where are you going to stand or sit in order to get that fly in the lane without drag? With steelhead, man, you march out to the top, start making your casts and just keep going. You know. Uh, um well, that, that's that's really cool, and I appreciate. Now, now that we've discouraged, now that we've discouraged all your listeners in the southeast from ever going steelhead fishing, because you know, did I mention the water is also forty degrees? You're freezing your nuts off, and it's probably <laughs> pouring down rain. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I'm ever going to go steelhead fishing. Yeah, there you go. But, but it's it, you know, I, I like to at least imagine in my head, or at least. Uh, be, be able to, to 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 read your words and and headwaters, which um which we're we're still gonna get to. I want to say I kind of want to save that for for last because I have some specific things to talk about there. But sure. um all right so steelhead I know this is going to be a loaded question and you and we're gonna go ahead and get the the ugly stuff out of the way. Um what it, most anglers in the southeast um, you know, have seen pictures, they understand steelhead or sea run. Um, they're basically sea run rainbows, right? I mean, more or less. Um, but, you know, speaking for myself and probably a lot of anglers down here, that's about the extent of it, um, which is kind of which, why I was curious about asking you the, the, the original question. But what is what is threatening steelhead today? And I'm just going to stop there. So <laughs> what isn't, what isn't threatening <laughs> okay. today? Um, yeah. You know, on the West coast, we're um, <clears throat> in the middle of a, you know, or maybe closer to the end of a precipitous slide in steelhead populations. I mean, it, it's, we're potentially looking at, at extinction. I mean, we're, it, it's really bad right now. Um, the runs have been, historically low, all-time low, catastrophically low for three years in a row from, you know, Northern California up into the Skeena and British Columbia. And, you know, they're all suffering from different localized problems from, 
you know, California's like lack of water and dams. Um, you know, in in Oregon, there's logging practice issues and habitat degradation, um, hatchery issues everywhere up and down the state. As far as um, you know, the science has been pretty clear that when you introduce hatchery genetics, that the wild fish decline rapidly. Um, and then the trouble with the hatchery fish is because um, uh, they inbreed and are selecting themselves genetically for traits that help them survive in the hatchery rather than in the wild. Uh, hatchery programs, every few years, the numbers start to really decline and you have to add wild fish genetics back to them to kind of prop them back up. But the hatcheries, if they're driving the wild fish to extinction, are really driving themselves to extinction as well. Um, and so it's not a sustainable in any way practice. And, and so we have hatchery problems in the rivers all up and down the coast. Um, here in Washington, you know, I think in a lot of the rivers, the limiting factor why we're not recovering fish, you know, um, there's a lot of unused habitat. Like, there, you know, there's a lot of groups working on improving habitat, but the fact is there's also lots of unused habitat because the populations have crashed so much. Um, and then, you know, on into British Columbia. So uh, the Skeena River, which has, you know, much less human caused problems than the rivers down here. Um, you know, I'm talking, the Skeena is kind of like the Valhalla of, of steelhead fishing and it's it's the main stem skeena but it's the bulkley the maurice the kispiox the sustet the copper the babi i mean it's all these famous steelhead rivers all feed into the one one mother river which is the skeena um, you know last year they had the lowest run in all the years they've been doing a test fishery there um and you know the local problem there really seems to be um uh ocean harvest of Skeena steelhead in the Southeast Alaska salmon fisheries, that they're intercepted before they get to the river. Uh, there's some in-river in uh, sockeye gillnet fisheries, salmon fisheries that also intercept a lot of the steelhead. Um, so there's these localized problems sort of in every watershed up and down the coast. And then on top of it, um, we have declining ocean productivity. Yeah. At the same time that we're really increasing the number of, of hatchery fish that are being released into the North Pacific. And so that's that's California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, British Columbia, Alaska, and it's Russia, Korea, and Japan. And cumulatively, we're exceeding carrying capacity for the North Pacific. So <clears throat> I read just recently that there's a there's more juvenile salmon and steelhead in the Pacific Ocean than ever in the history of the world. And they're producing fewer adult salmon and steelhead to return to the rivers than ever in the history of the world. And, and the fact is there just isn't enough food. Like we're putting out so many babies that they're eating up all the food and aren't surviving to come back as adults. Um, you know, I forget how many billions of hatchery fish we collectively release into the ocean and it, it's having a huge impact. Um, you know, there's also some weird things going on uh, in the in Eastern Russia or the Western Pacific. Um, <clears throat> the pink salmon population is exploding over there and that's contributing to there being too many juvenile salmon out in the ocean as well. 
Um, so you're probably sorry you asked. And if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you're still with us. Um, but, uh, so it's a combination, I think, of of localized and regionalized specific problems, whether it's hydroelectric dams or hatcheries in the rivers or uh, habitat degradation or you know harvest if we're catching too many of them in the rivers, either sport fishermen or um, tribal fisheries or whatever. But I think one of the really huge things that people are just starting to look at more deeply is the cumulative effect on all, of all these hatchery fish just being sent out to the ocean. Yeah, because it's more, I mean, it just, without knowing, understanding the, 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 the science behind it, but common sense is kind of like, well, you're kind of just dumbing them down. Like they don't, they don't like, it's like catching a wild, this is maybe a bad comparison, but it's just what I know. I, I used to live in Wyoming. So, you know, catching uh, a wild cutthroat trout is, is a remarkably different experience than when I moved back east. I went up to North Georgia and not to not to not North Georgia. I'm, I'm from Georgia, but, you know, you go catch a, a farm raised trout, basically a pellet pig. And even though that is a huge fish, it's it's just a thud. I mean, it's just it's just like you're hooked to a, a log. It doesn't have the the wild. I mean, you can your your rod turns electric when it's a wild fish. I mean, you know, yeah, oh, for, for the angling experience, for sure. But I think that also extrapolates to to the survival ability of those fish. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, if, if, if a wild steelhead is like a wild wolf, you know, the hatchery steelhead is like a chihuahua. You know, it's been domesticated and you need to feed it and it need to take care of it. If you just turned it out in the wild, it would it would perish. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so I think that's a huge part of it is that the genetics, because the hatchery fish end up spawning with the wild fish, um, you know, in the first generation alone of a mixed you know, if you have one hatchery fish and one wild fish that spawn together out in the wild, the survival return rate of their offspring is like as much as 30 to 50% fewer fish are able to survive just after one generation of receiving some hatchery genetics. Um, wow. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's a, it's, it's a short-term fix so that you could have fish to fish for, but in the long term hatchery fish trend towards zero and they make the wild fish trend towards zero at the same time so the longer you do it the fewer fish you have i wonder if i i, and I don't know this this is this is kind of an aside that I'll, I'll i'll dive into and if i find some info i'll send it your way after the interview but i know that there's actually uh redfish are released hatchery redfish are released here and i wonder and I wonder what the impact that's having. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Um, I would be concerned. I mean, yeah, I would be concerned. I mean, what, what all the science out here, I mean, there is a mountain of peer-reviewed, published scientific papers that show that, that the influence of hatchery genetics on wild fish basically prevents any kind of recovery and actually ends up reducing the amount of catchable fish available. So th this is total speculation, but I was having a conversation the other day with, with a friend of mine, and we were talking about redfish, because we were redfishing, and we were like, you know, we were like, I wonder, 
like why do like so we have you know like vast marsh ecosystem here and um those redfish it's a nursery for them but for the most part when they get big enough you know 30 plus inches or, or so they're going to go out to sea to, to spawn um and they may never come back um but we're always thinking like hey but i, I think that some of them like hang around like there's always some big fish i wonder there's any correlation between maybe those are the dumb hatchery (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're too stupid to go out i I don't know i mean yeah i mean there was a bunch of research where the hatchery programs on atlantic salmon is that those fish couldn't navigate back home after they went out to the ocean too like they you know they couldn't they don't have the gps yeah, or there were also cases where they studied, um, you know, most of the Atlantic salmon all go to the same area, whether they come from North America or Europe, they end up in the same kind of in the middle of the North Atlantic, there's a big feeding area. Um, but the hatchery fish, the juveniles were so slow migrating out to the feeding grounds that by the time they got there, it was too late. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, a, it's almost comical. I mean, a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, if you think about this, like, like, you know, if you take a wild fish in any environment, it's a product of, of, of thousands and thousands, millions of generations where all the weak ones died and right. only the very, very best ones were able to survive to reproduce. And so you're yeah. looking at kind of this pinnacle of evolution, whereas, you know, so I think like, you know, if you take just steelhead, for example, if you take steelhead in the wild if two adults reproduce, and this is, you know, a big female might have 4,000 eggs. And out of those 4,000 eggs, if two adults survive, you have replacement value and a steady, a steady population, right? Yeah, yeah. If three survive out of 5,000, you have a growing population, right? If you, you know, if four or five of them survive, you have really good and I'm talking not just hatch, survive to hatch, but I mean, survive, hatch, go out to the ocean, come back, spawn. Um, so, you know, two or three out of 5,000 is is pretty good to reach spawning. In the hatchery, you know, they they have like the eggs, 99% of them survive. And they're right. in these perfectly aerated tanks with temperature controlled water and everything. So, so all the stupid and lame ones survive too. Um, you know, whereas in the wild, the, the ones that are weaker can't even make it out of the gravel or hatch from their eggs in huge numbers, you know. And so yeah. that um, it's sort of I, uh, Yvonne Chouinard talks about um, devolving like the, yeah. the, the, those fish. It's, it's the opposite of evolution that they're devolving, you know. And, um, and I think that's what happens when you start artificial propagation in a fish. It's like the, I think the bumper sticker, like, hey, you out of the gene pool, you know, that's kind of the, the it, it's, it's, it's kind of like that, you know, I mean. Um, yeah, there's, I'm sure you can name a number of people you hope never reproduce. Um, <laughs> that's the, uh, there used, I don't know if they still do it, but you remember the Darwin Awards? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Video yeah. clips of the stupidest things people did for the year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's. That's hatchery, that's hatchery fish, you know, so I'm really alarmed, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of research going on in the southeast in Florida now around um, uh, hatchery propagation for bonefish. Huh. 
Um, you know, I know that that there is a, a redfish program, and um, you know they tried it in Southern California with white sea bass and and some other like inshore fish, and the the results were like were dismal. I mean, you know, they would release thousands of juvenile fish, and maybe one or two would be harvested. Like it, wow. you know, I mean, they're just not surviving. So. Um, so my hope is that the uh, the bonefish programs and the redfish programs go away because I think eventually what you'll end up with is a lot less fish rather than more fish. Yeah, over the long term, it's a, it's yep. a term, it's it's a quick fix. You think that it's doing some good because you're catching more fish and there's more people buying fishing licenses and everything else, but at the end of the day, it's not sustainable in the long term. Yeah, and it, it's it's sort of counterintuitive, right? Like you think, like we'll put more fish out there, and then there'll be more fish to catch, right? But what happens? You put more fish out there, and within a few generations, there's less fish to catch, and then the next year, there's even less and less and less. And that's we've been in that slide with steelhead here for fifty years. That it's just constantly gone downhill. Um, you know, has in, there in, has there ever been? A so it's it's been like has there been any sort of indication that things aren't declining? I guess no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Word no. No, I mean you know there are places where the fish are doing better than others, but I think you know one of the things is that we know these wild fish, like we talked about, they're the pinnacle of evolution. That they have really varied life histories and sizes and shapes and and. So as climate change starts to change, you know, this climate crisis is getting pretty, pretty obvious, I would say. And, yeah. and the results we're seeing, at least in the Pacific Northwest, are not helpful, you know, and that we're having yeah. more summertime drought with hot water and low water and then more catastrophic flooding in the winter, um, neither of which is good for salmon and steelhead or trout. Um, and we know that in compromised environments, wild fish can survive much better than hatchery fish. Okay. So I feel like, like as the effects of the climate crisis become more and more pronounced, it's, it's even more important than it was before that we start relying on fish that are evolved to deal with change better. Yeah. And, yeah. and those are, you know, I mean, should these fish survived catastrophic earthquakes and landslides and volcanic eruptions. And, you know, this is a Pacific ring of fire. I mean, you know, they can, they can survive adverse conditions, but the hatchery fish can't, yeah. you know, cause they're dumbed down, they're devolved. And so I think like the pressure now, because of what you work in, you know, which is climate issues um, is, is really the big picture for our reliance on hatchery fish making extinction even more likely. It's just, it's really just seems like it's just speeding, speeding up the process. Um, all right. Well, now we are going to shift gears. Okay. <laughs> now that, okay. Hopefully like, you know, you guys can put the sharp objects down. And <laughs> yeah. um, you know, hey. take the rat poison and put well, it back well, in the box. Well, well, I'll, there's something I'll say to that because I think that this is, this is also maybe a good opportunity to say this to, to anyone listening is that now where we are like the uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change just released their sixth report this week. Um, and what is in, 
increasingly apparent is that everybody's actions matter. And like, I mean, where that were, you know, a few years ago, it was like, well, it's just these 100 companies are emitting 75% of the emissions. So it's just them. And now it's like, well, if they're not going to slow down, this is going to be an all hands on deck situation and your actions do matter. So I would say, you know, when it comes to defending wild fish or taking climate action, um, you know, now's the time and uh, it matters. So that's, that's, yeah, I, I, I totally, it, it, I think even like a different angle to that is that everybody's actions matter. And, and it's maybe not just leaving the lights on in your house or driving to the grocery store or whatever. But I also think it matters what the individual's actions are in relation to the corporations. So who you choose to buy products or services yeah. from, yeah. I think makes a huge difference, you know, much bigger difference than your own personal usage, because then you start to, you know, I mean, corporations, manufacturing corporations, especially, they need customers and they're going to change their habits based on what their customers want. And so if enough of us through some combination of just changed buying practices or, um, you know, outright boycotts of certain corporate companies uh, to whatever it is that I think that collectively more than our individual actions, we can impact some of those top hundred companies that are emitting the most carbon or whatever it is that we actually have an impact there in a way that has much probably bigger impact than the mileage of your car or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's all that. I, 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 I think it's an all hands on deck situation. Um, but the, but okay. Hang on. I want to shift gears still. Okay. Okay. All right. We're good. Cause, cause we, we can keep going down, down that path. And uh, I want to be cognizant of your time. So headwaters, um, I've I've read about a third of it, just to be fully transparent. But um, I love the way you write, and I, I was about to get myself in trouble last night not being able to to, to put it down laying in bed. Um, to be completely honest, um, and one of the things, hey, some people say it's a great cure for insomnia. So you know. <laughs> It had the opposite effect on me. And I got up early this morning and, and kept reading and while I was having my coffee and I really enjoyed it. Um, but I, so, I mean, not that I know a, t- a ton about you other than reading, reading Closer to the Ground and, and some of your, your work with uh, Patagonia Films and Damnation and, and all that. But um, so you, you've traveled extensively all over the world to fish. And I didn't know that. Um, so. I guess what are, you know, I mean, if you've, I've traveled a little bit, you know, I haven't been to a lot of places. I've I've traveled some, but what are some of the, your favorite, I guess, species in in your travels that that you've gone after? I just read your GT story and that like got me like real fired up about GT. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I, so much of, I mean, kind of, I, I think a, a big part of, of Headwaters is about the evolution, you know, of a fisherman's perspective. 
you know, one fisherman, me, um, but I think there's, you know, touch points where people can kind of go, oh, that rings a bell. And um, I think one of the things that's changed for me as a fisherman is sort of the priority levels of what makes a good fishing trip, you know? And so if you've read the first third of it, that's mostly about total gung-ho, go crazy, go all over and do whatever it takes to catch the biggest fish and the most fish. And, um, you know, they're kind of adventure stories. And I think, you know, what you'll see as you read farther into it is that, um, you know, conservation concerns come more to the forefront, but also the appreciation more of the people you're with Mm -hmm. that you experience these things with. And so like, you know, I can think of a bunch of trips where maybe the fishing wasn't that great, but it was such a memorable trip because of the, the chemistry of the people that were there and the things that we did together. Um, You know, so it's hard for me to say what, I mean, you know, Northern British Columbia feels sort of like home for me. And, and I love being up there. It it's, part of, I think, you know, on the West coast, I always think of it as the, the northward time machine that, you know, the farther North you go, you go back in time and it feels like what it was probably like where I live hundred years ago when you go a thousand miles North. So, you know, my favorite destination is probably Northern British Columbia. Um, but that's also because I'm a steelhead addict and, and it's based around that, but you know, the, the hospitality, the people, um, you know, there's just a real warmth to the North as far as, as the people there. So I love that. Um, love the tropics too, you know, um, there's a story in there about being in Cuba, uh, more recently that was, you know, super fantastic trip. Um, you know, and I, I really like just for the pure fishing, like I was really, I was fortunate enough to go to, um, you know, the Southern tip of South America to, uh, Argentine Patagonia um, a number of times and the the sea run brown trout fishing there is just a spectacular fishery like I mean just the fish are really big and really beautiful and they fight like crazy I mean you know I think you know I catch a brown trout in North America and I'm like okay you know it pulls a little bit and here it is and you know yeah. I'm excited because I fooled it into eating a dry fly or whatever those sea run brown trout are probably more electric than steelhead. I mean, they will make, I mean, no, no exaggeration. They'll make, you know, a hundred foot run with their back half out of the water. looks like you fired a torpedo, Um, you know, and they'll jump as high as your head five, six, seven times. I mean, they're, I mean, they're not all that way, but you know, if you catch rested fish, they're, they're really spectacular fish. Um, So that, that would be a favorite as well. you know, I've enjoyed it all. I mean, you know, I've done two trips in Japan fishing for six inch fish that, you know, the nine incher was a trophy and, um, and had a blast because it's super beautiful and it's a really different place. And, um, you know, I think, uh, uh, my friend Yvonne, again, to quote him or paraphrase him, you know, he always says, well, you know, my personal hell uh, will be paved with jet fuel, you know, from flying around and, um, you know, there's a little bit of guilt involved around that, but, um, but I, I, yeah, I mean, to me now it's really the people that are there, you know, the food you eat, the things you see, and if the fishing is really awesome, that kind of, that's kind of a topper there. There's a redfish story in there too. Oh, I look forward to that. 
Uh, yeah, it's a- don't 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 give it all away because I'm probably and I'll, I'll probably end up finishing this. Of course, naturally, I, I didn't finish it before the interview, but um, I'm 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 not a real journalist. I'm just a fisherman with a podcast. But the the, the uh, oh, but- that's okay. I'm not a, I'm not a real writer either. So <laughs> it's uh, we're in the same boat there. Um, no, I, I think you know. Um, I I I hope you like the redfish story it's about fishing in the open ocean off of harker's island uh yeah. north carolina yeah um and uh which that also by the way the 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 albacore fishery at harker's island is a is a killer fishery um i've really enjoyed that and um have some really good friends that guide down there that i was able to fish with and um, Brian Horsley and Sarah Gardner. I don't know if you know them. They're, uh, I, I don't know them, but I've, I, I know of them. Yeah. Yeah. I fished with them there. That's a super cool fishery. Um, so I hope you like the redfish story. It's not the marshes of the low country. I, that's actually something I've yet to experience. Come on down. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get you. Some, yeah. I'd uh, love to. We, well, I would go to South Carolina just for the food. I mean, I, you know, we're, 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 we are, uh, very fortunate to, to, to live where we live with the food. It is pretty spectacular. I can't, I can't argue with you. There. Yeah. Charleston. I mean, Charleston's like one of the great food capitals in North America, you know, and uh, the way I think of it. And so, yeah. yeah, I would go just for the food. Um, and, uh, yeah. So I think, you know, it's a little bit probably an unusual book in that there's, really kind of this wide range of fishing stories in there. I mean, it's sort of couched from the perspective of a steelhead fisherman, but um, there's a story in there about um, fly fishing in a bass tournament. That's everybody else was regular gear fishing um, that uh, may <laughs> ring a bell for some Southeasters. Um, there's a, there's a fly fishing love story in there, which I think is highly uh, unusual. All right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I hope you find the time to read it and 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 enjoy it. And um, the people listening to this, I hope you you like this. I hope you all like this book because it's uh, it's been kind of a labor of love. Well, I, I can for me personally. I mean, I I like to read fishing stories, obviously, as as an angler. But yours are particularly good. And I love the way you all the, the way that you end them all is so unique. I don't know. I don't, it's just like it's one of those things where it's like I can recognize good. I could never write like that, but I can like when I read it, I'm like, God, this is like, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it, but it's like this is really good writing. Like this is amazing. And, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm being serious. I'm not saying this to to to, to do whatever. That's how I feel about it. And like the way that the stories end have this unique character or something to them that it's it, 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 it's always like i kind of like any story with a, with a little smirk on my face i'm like oh, yeah yeah um it's yeah, well that that's, i thank you for the kind words and uh that'll put you in a category of two that's you and my mom uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh no it's nice to hear and i you know i, I feel really fortunate that there's been you know a bunch of really good reviews of it people have been very kind to the book so far and so i'm excited for it to to actually be born it feels like i've been working on it for i have been working on it in one way or another for 20 years so the fact that it's 
um, soon to be out in the world is kind of, it's kind of scary, but it's also, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. When, when, uh, when is the official release date and where can people pick up a copy? Uh, the book will launch officially on April 12th. Okay. Um, so that's coming up pretty quick and it'll be available wherever, wherever you buy books. Yeah. Um, uh, there'll be an audio book. I just finished recording the audio book of it as well. Um, that'll be available from Penguin Random House. So um, I'm not sure what their distribution method is, but probably wherever you find audio books, you could get it if you, yeah. you know, I know a lot of fishermen listen to podcasts and stuff like this one while they're driving. Yep. Um, so it'll be downloadable that way. Um, if you choose not to hear my voice droning <laughs> on and on, um, then the print, the print book is beautiful. You know, um, Frances Ashforth, who's a, a really good yeah. fisherman and a friend, she's a wonderful artist, painter, printmaker, did, uh, did all the art. I think there's 38 interior illustrations and a really beautiful cover. Um, so it's, I, I think it would be nice to have the, the actual hardcover print book, but, but it's hard to read while you're driving and fishermen <laughs> tend to drive a lot. So, uh, so we went back, we went with the audio book as well. Um, and then I'll be touring. I, if everything goes well, um, I'll be in, in different places, uh, doing readings and book signings and stuff, uh, in, Later in April, we have a, a big launch, like a pre-publication launch party here at Emerald Water Anglers in Seattle. It's one of your one of your uh, um, carbon neutral fly shops. Yeah, that, yeah uh, absolutely, way good. Uh, so that's on uh, that's April fifth, and then uh, later in April, I'll be in San Francisco and Portland, and then Seattle uh, at the Patagonia stores and then also uh, St. Paul, and then I think two in New York in May. Uh, and then we're gonna do some Mountain West uh, fly, fly shop based um, kind of fly fishing country events in, uh, in Bend, Oregon, uh, Boise and Sun Valley, Idaho, and then Bozeman, Montana. Nice. So, and then whatever else crops up, I'm really, I'm, I'm really committed to trying to, to do what I can to, to push this book. And uh, so I'm hoping that that stuff ends up working and that it's fun to get out. And, you know, when Closer to the Ground came out, I did two really extended book tours and I never really felt 100% comfortable because the people that would come to those things and the way they were sort of promoted was either as like, like some expert food guy or some oh. expert parenting guy you know is this a parenting book or is it a food preparation book or is it a foraging book and um and i'm none of those things i just <laughs> happened right so i always felt a little bit awkward and so i'm looking forward to this a lot more because the fishermen are my people like i feel right, you know right. like that's home um, I think this one will be a lot easier to promote for me as far as um, uh, just spending time with, with other fishermen. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we can uh, add Charleston to the to, to the list and we can uh, go fish for some tail and redfish and uh, have a, uh, a get together to talk about the book. 
Yeah, that would be super fun. That would be, yeah, if there's a good venue in Charleston that would be interested in, you know, in a book they never heard of written by a guy whose name they can't pronounce, then I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's awesome, Dylan. I think that is like probably a really perfect note to, to wrap, but... Thanks for listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. A special thanks to Dylan for joining me on today's episode. And uh, you can find uh, Headwaters, uh, probably the easiest place is on the Patagonia website. Um, And if you like what you're hearing, uh, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. That helps the show out a lot. Thanks and have a good one.